Well, if you look at a map of Utah, you cannot miss Great Salt Lake, a huge patch of blue in the north of the state near the borders with Idaho and Wyoming. You can even see it from space, apparently, at least according to Google. Well, uh, the Great Salt Lake of Utah is on the verge of becoming locals warn an environmental disaster. It has already shrunk by two thirds since the 1980s from about 8,500 square kilometers to just over 26 or just under 26. That's according to U.S. Geological Survey data from last summer. Climate change and siphoning of water from its mountain source are behind the evaporation. The population of Salt Lake City, of course, has exploded in recent years, meaning more and more of the mountain's snowmelt is being diverted from rivers to homes and farms. And the warning is that the lake continues to dry up at this rate. The ecological and human impacts will be disastrous. Part of that is because the lake's bed soil contains a cocktail of heavy metals. So when they're exposed to windstorms, it would drive arsenic, presumably into the lungs of people living nearby. And three quarters of Utah's population apparently would be affected by the poisonous air. Well, to look into this a little bit more is Bonnie Baxter. She's a professor of biology at Westminster College in Salt Lake City and director of the Great Salt Lake Institute. Uh, Thank you for your time, Dr. Baxter. Oh, thanks. I'm happy to be here. For listeners who may not be aware, and perhaps the name of Salt Lake City is a bit of a giveaway, but just how important is Great Salt Lake to the entire region, a fast-growing one at that? Oh, it it is our namesake, and it is um, something that I've come to understand is in the fabric of people that live in Utah. Um, now that it's threatened, I'm hearing from people daily about you know how much they're they're missing this lake already um, before it's gone. And it's, um, it's fascinating to think about its role in humans' lives. But uh, yeah, it, it creates jobs. It provides an amazing resource for birds. Um, it supports industry. It's really important to the state of Utah and, frankly, the whole West. Uh, you just used a term that I think people might be shocked to hear, and that's the word gone. Um, what's been yeah. happening to Great Salt Lake recently? Well, in 2019, I co-wrote the obituary for Great Salt Lake, which was is written as if we were in the future and looking back at a lake that was gone. And um, so, I I do think a lot about that, um, about what it, what what it will be if it is gone. And um, I tried to shake people up by by writing that and publishing it. And it it's getting a lot of airplay right now, actually, yeah. because people are resurrecting that piece. And um, it so so the threat is really about the lake shrinking. It it's normal for terminal lakes to shrink and swell. You know, like your normal ever average everyday lake has a certain elevation, and it might flood a little when there's a lot of rain, but then it comes back down to its normal elevation, and, and water flows in, and water flows out, and it equilibrates, mm-hmm. um, but a terminal lake is kind of like, um, it's kind of like a cereal bowl, you know, it's it's shrinking and swelling based on how much milk you pour in the cereal bowl, and right. and how much evaporation occurs, and, and so that that the problem is we're getting less precipitation. We're getting more in the form of rain and, and not snow. Um, and we're getting warmer temperatures. So the we're getting increased evaporation. We're not recharging the water, if you will. We we didn't set ourselves up for success. That's the problem. We've been doing water diversions for about a hundred years. And um, so now the lake is not in a place where it can withstand the pressures of climate change. It has shrunk, I gather, by two-thirds. 
That's about right. I think it's like more than 40% of the shoreline is exposed. The, the lake bed, I mean, the lake bed is exposed. How close is it to it? I mean, we talk about tipping points where we think that a, a you know body of water, for instance, will not come back. And we've seen it happen around the world. How close is Great Salt Lake to reaching the point of no return? Well, so I, I could I could go deep into that question mm-hmm. because I study the the microalgae and the cyanobacteria that live on these stromatolite-like structures in the lake. And I'm watching very carefully because those are important for the ecosystem, for the foundation of the ecosystem. You know how they, how um, plants and algae are kind of the first level of any ecosystem on earth. Um, Well, that's threatened in two ways. One is because the lake is shrinking, these stromatolites are becoming exposed. And the other problem is that the lake is becoming more salty. So as the as the lake shrinks, water evaporates, but salt doesn't. So there's more salt and less water. And so we've watched this lake in the last few years go from about 12% salinity up to about 17% in oh. the south arm of the lake, where the big you know ecosystem is. Um, and and so what we know is these microbes that feed the brine shrimp and the brine flies that feed the food chain, um, those those microbes start to die at about 17% salt. So so right now we're at about 15.5%. We expect to be at 17 by the end of the summer, and that's a restrictive salinity. Um, so I think we're very close to a tipping point. Now, now, how long can they hang out at that restrictive salinity and then be resuscitated with more water? We, we don't know the answer to that. We're looking at that in our lab. Um, but yeah, that, that's why I'm worried because we're reaching a salinity that is detrimental not only to the invertebrates because brine shrimp and brine flies also would prefer to not be that salty, but also to the microbes that feed them. You've, you've talked about this. It is a very delicate balance and a chain reaction is set off if one yeah. thing goes, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm a molecular biologist, so I study genes and think about um, the way things live at high salt. And so I, I've been, I, I'm really focused on salinity because how salty something is, is, is really important to the kind of life that I study. But just for example, the, the ocean is, is about 3.5% salt. So we're talking about a system that has evolved to be at really high salt. And um, it's it's still got a threshold, though. It still could be too salty. And, and we've kind of already done this experiment because in 1960, um, folks built a railroad causeway across Great Salt Lake and um, shored up this old causeway that was there with rocks and prevented flow of water between the two arms and the north arm then became saturated with salt so it's like above 30 percent salt like almost 10 times the ocean right and the the brine shrimp don't live there the brine flies don't live there the birds don't come and eat there the the stromatolites are dead so we've already done this experiment and and it didn't turn out so well so do we want to do that with the rest of the lake (laughs) i i think not and, and it's been mentioned too that what lies beneath the lake, the lake bed itself, if it if it's exposed, uh, there's a lot of lot of different elements that are in that dust too. It could present a real health issue for the surrounding areas, no less. 
Yeah, that's correct. So there's a history of mining in the in the Western United States and also Canada, um, and the mining has some um, uh, environmental fingerprints, and one of those is is heavy metals in the environment. And so, uh, whether it's airborne mercury coming over from gold mining in Nevada, or uh, whether it's local mining that um, that used the water that then went into Great Salt Lake. Um, uh, selenium, arsenic, mercury, methylated mercury are in this lake bed. And I imagine those won't be good things to breathe when this dust becomes airborne. If and when they're kicked up. I'm speaking with Dr. Bonnie Baxter, a professor of biology at Westminster College in Salt Lake City, Utah, We're and director of the Great Salt Lake Institute. We're talking about uh, Great Salt Lake and just how much it shrunk over the past while by two-thirds, the increasing salinity, the impact that we'll have as uh, Great Salt Lake slowly disappears. And just what happens? How could we turn it around? We'll talk about that after this. I'm speaking with Dr. Bonnie Baxter, Professor of Biology at Westminster College in Salt Lake City, Utah, and Director of the Great Salt Lake Institute. Uh, we're talking about Great Salt Lake, really the oasis of which much of that area, fast one of the fastest growing areas in the U.S., is built around, including Salt Lake City, uh, its namesake, uh, and just what impact uh, you know the steady disappearance of Great Salt Lake is having uh, on the region. Uh, Bonnie, what can be done about this? I mean, you, you're obviously this is where you live. This is what you study. Uh, what yeah. can be done to try to turn this around? And, and I gathered involves some very difficult choices, both for people who live there and lawmakers and businesses in general. Yeah, I think I think the funny thing about scientists is we can, you know, we can see the problem. Um, like I said, when we wrote the obituary in 2019, we were already seeing the problem and, and we can call attention to the problem, but we're really not great at engineering solutions because that requires um, like a legislature and water lawyers and policy. And that's not, you know, that's not in a scientist's wheelhouse typically. So I, I've been really amazed at what's happened over the last year in the state of Utah. Um, the state agencies have really taken this to heart and have been working hard altogether. Um, the state lands folks, the water quality folks, the division of wildlife um, and and they've gotten the attention for the lake that it needs. And that resulted in a really kick-ass legislative session. There were um, so many, just numerous bills that were passed that have to do with getting water to the lake, whether it's uh, redefining beneficial use as that for um, a saline lake, or whether it is um, creating a trust to fund research on the lake, um, some of the infrastructure package that was passed in the U.S., um, House and Senate ended up in Utah and will be used for Great Salt Lake. Um, so it, it, I was really amazed at the way environmental groups, industry, real estate developers, legislators were all on the same team, and these bills passed unanimously. It was amazing. So bipartisan legislation doesn't often happen in Utah, and that was pretty phenomenal. So there is some hope here that maybe uh, things will be turned around. And, and it, is, it is quite the example of, of just how lawmakers and people from all walks of life and all different sorts of uh, economic activities can pull together if the very source of their livelihood is threatened the way yours is. Oh, that's right. I mean, a lot of people move to Utah because of the ski industry. And um, part of that 
snow that Utah's slogan is the greatest snow on earth. So um, they, they're really proud of that snow, right? And part of that snow is contributed by something called lake effect. So this, you know, storms move in and roll over this wet body of water and dump this beautiful snow on the mountain. So that is both our, our water supply, but it's also our fun in the winter time. And so, um, you know, people might care about the ecosystem. There are 10 million birds, 10 million birds that visit this lake every year. And, and it's a critical habitat. And, and maybe they don't care about the ecosystem. So then, oh, maybe they care about the economy. And so we've got brine shrimp industry and mineral extraction industry, and maybe they care about that. And, and okay, maybe they don't. So maybe they're real estate developers and they care about what the dust is going to do to the property values um, or, or maybe not. And I tell you, if you get down to the bottom of that list, the one that everybody cares about here is the ski industry. So. <laughs> as Canadians, as Canadians, we can relate to that as well. I bet, and certainly I bet. We, we understand lake effect snow as well. It's one of those common terms off the Great Lakes in Ontario as well. Um, one of the things you, you did talk about is that Canadians have an interest here too, because uh, the birds that migrate from Canada to Mexico uh, stop off at Great Salt Lake. It, it would have yeah. an impact north of the border as well, would it not? Absolutely. Um, the, the 10 million birds that visit here um, are, are stopovers to feed up before they, they head further south for the winter. And this is said to be the most important body of water in the, the Western Americas and, and for, for these birds. So that stopover and those brine shrimp that they eat, um, there's powerful biomass in this lake with the brine shrimp and the brine fly and the brine fly larvae that are in the lake. Um, and these birds come here and they get fat and then they can carry on their journey. So um, there are many bird species that will be threatened if this lake disappears. And yeah, Canadians really ought to care about that, particularly bird watching Canadians. Yeah, no, exactly. So, so you do have some optimism then. So what are we looking for in the near future? You spoke earlier about how the fact that by the end of this summer, we could see salination at levels that would be essentially, in, we think, right. in, intolerable. So are we looking at a, at a lot of short-term uh, bad news before we see something better? I hope so. I mean, some of this depends on climate, right? And, um, and, and local weather and all of those things. But uh, I, I hope that some of the legislation that was passed will help move some of this water to the lake. So that's one way that things get better. Um, but also, I'm, I'm on a state committee for um, studying the salinity of the lake. And uh, one of the things that we're talking about are engineering mechanisms to potentially move some of the salt from the south arm to that um, isolated north arm that I talked about that is at saturation. And so if we could uh, move some of the salt um, that way and make this arm uh, of the lake that serves the birds a little less salty, that would be great. So I think some potential engineering solutions that make a little bit of difference and maybe um, some more water that... um, you know, farmers decide to lease their water rights to the state, the water that they're not using, that would be great. They're actually going to measure secondary water uh, for farmers, which has never been done so that so that agriculture folks can actually know how much water they're using and if they need it all. So there's some interesting um, potential solutions and all of them could make a little bit of difference. Um, also, if you travel in the southwestern United States, you often, like in Arizona, New Mexico, you'll see like landscaping that looks like gravel with really dry xeric plants growing in it. And 
that's only beginning to take off in Utah. Utahns are really proud of their lawns. Um, and that needs to stop because that's water that has very little benefit. And I think we need to get a little more water wise and focus on conservation and um, do what we can do and control what we can control. Certainly an example here of how when the climate changes, when your access to water changes, the things you've taken for granted, no doubt in a place like Utah for many, many decades now, suddenly you you can't. Uh, Bonnie Baxter, thank you so much for your time tonight. Yeah, so great to talk to you. Thank you for your interest in the lake.